0: Welcome to Middlebrow, guys. This is our podcast, uh, a mostly contemporary art podcast hosted by completely average human artists. We talk about art. We try to be super interesting. It's for artists and for people who want to know about art but might be intimidated. Tr- uh, oh.
1: Tr- <laughs> <laughs> Trust us, me? We're right there with you. Sure. She's obviously
0: not right here with us because she's not even listening because nope. she
1: doesn't know her
0: lines. Nope. Never. Let's not go into um theater together.
1: I quit my improv.
0: <laughs> Finally, I was wondering yeah. when you were gonna quit. This is such a bad idea. Mark Bradford, Mark everybody. Mark Bradford. Do we know what episode is this? Episode?
1: Um I could tell I sh- you. Ready? Middlebrow anchor. We have 167 plays.
0: A hundred of those are me. Yep. <laughs> just kidding.
1: And Australians, we have four percent of our audience. You should not do this in Australian accent. Nope. Then. And three uh, percent. I'm going to put it New in close
0: Australian accent. It's just we like have a...
1: people from, from South Africa, <gasps> and the UK, and the Netherlands, and Canada. Okay, what?
0: No. Eighty percent is from the United States. How great would it be to have no hair like Mark Bradford?
1: Who's, oh, yeah. <laughs> Who's Mark Brett? <Bradford? laughs> Is that what
0: you were going to say? <laughs> Cancel the podcast.
1: He doesn't know about her own person. <sighs> I'm trying, to, my hands are so sweaty right now. I just got so nervous. I can't even scroll on my laptop. It's just sliding. <laughs> Why? I don't you know. You got nervous about the fact that you didn't know Mark girlfriend well, Their AC is broken, so it's super hot in here. Wait, are you still, like, good with Native? Yeah. Out of curiosity. (laughs) No, I do. I do like Native, but you can't put it on your hands. Well, I know that.
0: that. Okay, Mark.
1: So, Mm -hmm. I was really excited. I brought up Mark at a horse show I was just at, and several people around the table all knew about him. And They're like, he's (gasps) Really? really hot right now.
0: Wow. Was it because he was on 60 Minutes?
1: <laughs> Maybe. I first heard about Mark, I think, in undergrad.
0: Well, you're way cooler than all of us. <laughs> My eye's twitching. It's going to be a problem. Okay, you knew about him in undergrad.
1: When did you first cool. hear about him?
0: Um, last week. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I honestly can't remember. I think you told me about him, but I remember seeing like his work or you telling me something about him, but I didn't remember his name, which is not a big deal. I'm not very good with names.
1: A lot of people might have just watched a 60-minute thing that, or report, what's called, on him interviewed by Anderson Cooper. They went to a studio, saw his practice. Do people watch 60 Minutes? Let's take a census about it. Do you even have 60 Minutes in Australia? That's what I was just thinking. <laughs> <laughs> 60 minutes.
0: Again, do it again.
1: No. Darn it. <laughs> his mother had a beauty salon in Lemert Park. Is that how you pronounce it? When Mark was 11, they moved to a largely white neighborhood in Santa Monica. Uh, what well, part of Santa Monica isn't, though? Yeah, what? <laughs> it's like a super white community there. But his mom kept the salon business in their old neighborhood. Mark would go to work at his mom's salon after high school and got his hairdresser license and all. Aw, did he have hair then? No. Okay. He got called a sissy a lot because he was creative and in touch with his emotions. Aw. That's so (sighs) stupid. I know, it's ridiculous.
0: Also, you're supposed to have feelings. Like, humans have feelings. I don't care if you're a man or a woman. That's just so stupid. I haven't
1: watched it yet, but Dax says it a million times. Go watch the documentary, The Mask We Live In,
0: right? Yep. I think it's The Mask You Live In.
1: The Mask You Live In.
0: Because it's supposed to sound like masculine.
1: Oh.
0: And women, you're allowed to have feelings, too. And when people call you crazy and emotional, you're just being normal
1: he grew up in this matriarchal society and they created this safe space for Mark and he was allowed to be himself and be creative and be emotional and that was okay while working at the salon he had access to certain materials that were cheap like end papers which are these small pieces of paper for perms and jerry curls super cheap they're 50 cents for a box of them and he was allowed to just like experiment without consequences oh like consequences, consequences you know yeah. He, he so didn't after, go out and
0: buy a nice paint.
1: The end papers were so translucent and transparent that he couldn't see the border, so he would have to actually burn the edges which so you could see them. Oh. Speaking so directly to black girls and women who knew this material and identified with it, this in itself added a social and political context to the work. He said, I liked it because it came from the social fabric of life. It came from what I did for a job, trying to bring the social back into the studio, and then bring the studio out into the social, back and forth. Being an abstract expressionist painter, for me, it was a political act because I didn't want people to overdetermine what it meant to be black, what it meant to be gay, what it meant to be a studio in South Central. Whoa, well, I need to make this story, not a revisionist story. I need to keep it complicated and messy and slow.
0: Ooh, slow. Interesting. <laughs>
1: Creativity was always a part of his life, but it never led anywhere. Paint this wall, style this hair, film this short thing, etc. It was just something you experienced after work. His mother was also an artist. She had the creativity, but she didn't have the possibility. His grandma sewed, his uncle drew comics, but he was the first one to actually go to art school and formalize it. He said, I gave myself permission to follow my voice. And that's what my whole career has been. I still give myself permission and no compromise. I compromised before, but not when I became an artist. No. Here are some of his end paper paintings. Mm. What I think is really cool. At the age of 30, he went to (gasps) CalArts, California Institute of the Arts, and got his BFA in 95 and then his MFA in 97.
0: We still have a chance to... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know.
1: (laughs) Yep. We can all do it. He, like, didn't even get started until he was 30.
0: That's like Lisa Congdon or whatever. Mm-hmm. Do you know her? Yeah. Dude, yeah. she started at, like, 50 or something. Yeah. Like, 40. It's nuts.
1: He decided to go to Cal Arts. He went back to back, like, got my BFA. I'm getting my MFA. And then making stuff nonstop. So in 1992, tensions grew between LAPD and the local community, which led to week-long riots. Mark began to notice physical traces this period of civil unrest left on the world. He said, In 1992, I was still in school, so I really hadn't developed a material vocabulary. But after the riot, it physically changed the physicality of the urban environment. A lot of plywood barricades went up. You would start to paper the one-sheets on them, and they would become very thick merchant posters what the merchant posters would always point to was again urgent need so walking by a sea of merchant posters you immediately knew what was going on in the community bed bugs immigrations losing your house you would get this incredible snapshot Mm. in this documentary i watched i don't remember who was saying it if it was like a curator an art historian or someone but someone was describing this idea of LA history not being long like European history. It can be a very few years, a few generations, a few events. And Mark's work plays with that idea of the patina of history, even over a short period of time.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. Agnes Martin inspired abstractions made from the white end papers used in perming hair. I like how they pointed to the world, he said. And I could get a whole box of end papers for 50 cents. I would affix them to bed sheets because I couldn't afford canvas. Soon that would change. The paintings caught the eye of the curator, Thelma Golden, scouting at the time for her groundbreaking 2001 post Black survey freestyle at the Studio Museum in Harlem, which is huge.
0: That's one of the things that I do feel a little bit cheated on, like going to art school as I felt like too early on in my life, I thought Mm -hmm. that it had to be a certain way, a certain thing. Yeah. And I mean, obviously it doesn't.
1: I think it gives you a different set of tools when you have to think outside the box, too. Like, if you have all of this creativity built up, you problem solve and you find solutions and you find a way for your work to exist. And if it can't be on canvas, it's on cardboard, it's on bedsheets, it's on whatever you can find. Yeah, I mean, because it, it, it has be- to-
0: It becomes more interesting.
1: And then down the road, you have that experience of if something works better on a bed sheet, you have that experience and you're more connected to your materials too because Mm -hmm. you have to actually live with them in a different way versus just using them. One feels more disposable and one feels more entangled with your process. Yeah. And that you can go back to it and revisit it and it comes full circle more than... Just like a linear progression. Right. I don't know. Maybe I'm romanticizing the idea of the struggling artist like everyone does. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it gives you.
0: But like his whole work became from, came out of this. Like mm-hmm. if he didn't have end papers for perming hair. Yeah. Yeah. Would he be working with paper the way he does? Probably not. Like it came from
1: that and everything we experienced. Yeah, it's his entire history and his community, his background and everything is wrapped up into this material that still is like a familial material from what he started with. He said, when I got out of school, I was so attracted to abstract art because of the fact that it was a no-no. It was a place that they kind of like, don't go there. We've deconstructed it. It's bad. It's a place of white male privilege. You are a gay black man. I need to have a place that I can work out who I am. I'll tell you what it means to be gay, my way. I'll tell you what it means to be from a hair salon, my way. I'll tell you, stop telling me. Was it okay for me to say that? Was it okay that I was going to use it through the gaze of abstraction? Was that running away from the male body, running away from my race, running away from my class? No, it wasn't. But I was going to tell it my way, in an autonomous way. This is the subject position. This is how I feel about it. I am autonomous, and I will tell you who I am, but let me be very clear. I'm black. I am. This is, I am black. My culture is black. I am fine with black. I don't have a problem with black, so I am autonomous. But collectively, I'm collective too.
0: That's the thing too that's really hard about... First of all, damn, he's amazing. Uh, <laughs> second of all, I like got chills during that and he wasn't even reading it to me. <laughs> so yeah. nice. Nice acting job.
1: What I love about <laughs> the way he talks, can I wish? Yeah, I tell could. me, tell me. He's so brilliant, but so casual and approachable too. He just talks in this not pretentious, not egotistical way. He's just the easiest person and he really does try to communicate without making people feel isolated or like they're not smart enough to talk to him or. Yeah. And I think that's part
0: of, I think sometimes that's why you get a weird vibe from some people. It's like the, I get the fake it till you make it thing, but it also can come off so weird. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes you can really feel the vibe from someone who's trying to fake it till they make it. And you're just like, you can be successful by being who you are. Some of the most successful people are successful because they are who they are without apology doesn't mean that you don't know anything but you don't have to sound like the people who are telling you how to be you know Yeah. yeah and I I think that's I think that's what he's saying too about his work he's saying the same thing I've had these experiences just because I'm now educated and I know what abstract art is supposed to mean or come from doesn't mean that I can't have my own experience with it, and use it in my own way and mix it up with the things that are mine, especially when you come from things that are so, like culture is trying so hard to tell us who black people are, what black people are, what gay people are, what it is to be poor or live in a certain area. Like they're trying so hard to put those people in boxes. I can be all those things and I can be it the way I want to, And I can jump into your pool too. That's fine,
1: (laughs) you know? So a quick side note I made here. He's made a ton of work and has many, many, many exhibitions, installations, and many more than I can list here and go into detail. So I did my best to go through A lot of his work.
0: Important stuff. Favorite stuff.
1: Yeah. I know I'm missing a ridiculous amount of paintings and shows and everything. So if I miss it, don't yell at me. I know I couldn't put everything in Australia, just calm down. Australia, I know you're feisty and you're going to be like, Crocky, what is this? (laughs) They (laughs) hate (laughs) us. You call yourselves a podcast? (laughs) I'm a Kiwi Mm -hmm. and an Australian. Known for drawing on the urban environment, he uses what he finds around him as his material on his multi-layered work. So this guy doesn't use paint in the traditional sense. Or kind of at all. What well, were paint. the big tubs of paint? I don't know. Couldn't find a single source that talked about him actually painting. Every place just said that he doesn't use paint. So Mark, if you do use paint, Send me an email. Send me a text message. Yeah, just real quick. You have my number.
0: We'll talk about it over lunch.
1: I'm gonna just hang out at his gallery space that he opened and just hope I run into him. Do it. I feel like he would love your work. You don't think <laughs> I'd so? I'd be too nervous to talk. To okay.
0: Him. <laughs> like you're like, like uh, I'm not even an artist. I just uh, don't look uh, at it. My anything. voice gets
1: all weird and. I, uh, <laughs> I I, I use beeswax. (laughs) I don't know why. Yes, so he uses paper and soaks it in large tubs of water to the point that it almost feels like paint and can manipulate it. He uses billboard paper and building material. He is an abstract painter, but he lives in the middle ground of material. Paintings are labeled as mixed media. Because I looked it up. But I know he just has these huge tubs of water and paper just soaks until they're you know mushy so they
0: break apart
1: and they still hold form you know it's like thick oil paint almost when you can scrunch up the paper and then it dries and gotcha okay yeah he says it's an amalgamation of materials that cling to the city as you pass by on your way to the metro while you're riding your bike by it's lodged in your memory it's the memory once I collect it and once I build it up, then oftentimes I tear it down. I create my own archaeological sites on the surface myself. It's like splaying the body. It's like tearing into the body. It's very physical.
0: That brings such a memory, uh, thinking about paper layered on top of each other on, like, when you're walking outside and it's on, like, oh, poles yeah. or, like, yep. construction stuff or whatever.
1: Yep. He would go out in the neighborhood and he would wear his like orange vest and look official Mm -hmm. and he would tear down the signs. You know, it's like, are you in debt? Or like we buy homes or cell phone stuff, whatever. He would tear them down and he would talk about how he could be almost right behind the person putting them up and they're doing something illegal and he's doing something illegal and they almost like look at each other and think, are you gonna call the cops? Am I gonna call the cops? <laughs> yeah, and you know, he's in this environment where you kind of can blend in and be unseen in that world. I feel like you know, if he was doing this in Santa Monica, like you wouldn't be able to get away with that. It was like us trying was to spray paint say. in Culver City literally, I was just my- gonna say. <laughs> So, yeah, he went out, he tried to look official and would take these down. And that's how he collected his material. And he would go out with his assistants and just tear down these posters.
0: That's cool. Yeah. Also, it's very, um, it's so city. Like, Mm -hmm. just the work in itself is like, feels like the city. You can't, like, you're probably not going to have the same experience or like reference for it if you've never really lived in a city for that long.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. This is what I think is so beautiful about his work. And not that other artists' work is less than, but he is a product, his work is a product of his environment, mm-hmm. you know, of the salon he was raised in, of the imagery he saw in the city he grew up in. Yeah. You know, his materials are what was available to him all around. I see him as like those, uh, like that Pink Floyd
0: Cover with the prism that's like rainbow mm. goes in one side comes yeah. out the other side, I see him as like the prism part it's like you his mean environment a light
1: goes in one side and the rainbow comes out the yes, other. yeah, sorry, <laughs> rainbow's everywhere um,
0: <laughs> uh, and so like his environment and his city and his world and like his family and however everything goes in one side, and then it like gets twisted up inside of him, and certain mm. things come out the other end with like. His touch on them, like he's just a filter yeah. for, which all, we all are. Like, if right. I look at your work, you're just like a filter for your experiences yeah. to go through and become this other thing. So, but hit for him, it's like so clear.
1: He also talked about being interested in archaeology and how one civilization will demolish another but use the bricks of the previous to build up their civilization. Mm. And then another civilization will demolish that one and take the bricks from them and build theirs. You have a Rome on top of Rome on top of Rome. And this is his like tear down, rebuild tear down, rebuild process.
0: Yeah. That's so interesting.
1: This is my note. Something I love about Mark is that he is an inept and deliberate artist and intellectual while remaining personable relatable and funny he comes off as someone who's easy to talk to which makes his work also feel approachable even though they address complex subject matter Mm -hmm. which i already said all that but anyone who hasn't heard him talk go watch a million youtube videos you will fall in love with him you will okay here's another quote saying thinking and walking is something i've done since i was six i think and walk for me i have to walk to think Sometimes I'll walk the streets to think, or walk around the studio. I do 70-30, or 60-40, which means I work on projects I'm working on, I understand them about 60% of the time. 40% of the time, I allow myself to just play, in the unknown. As soon as I discover something new, oh my god, that opens up the next moves. What I've learned from one piece of work, I immediately apply to the next one. That's me. That's me. But I'm not just from the streets and I'm not just from the studio. It's a hybrid. Bringing information from the world, the social, political, psychological, using material from the world, bringing it into my studio, adding another kind of psychological and historical fabric on top of it. And some all chemical happening and it is a work. Cool. <laughs> nice job. <laughs> Good on you. One,
0: one day I'll look back and feel like, and then I just did some stuff, and, and then it was a work.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, I have his works kind of separated by time, so you can see progression. So this is 2001. It's called "On a Clear Day." I can usually see all the way to Watts. 2001, mixed media, 72 by 84. Um, it's all the end paper works with color. 2005.
0: Where's Black Venus? Below. Oh, this. Oh, below all this writing. Black
1: Venus. (laughs) 2005. Billboard paper, photochemical reproductions, acrylic gel medium, carbon paper, and additional mixed (laughs) media. This is why
0: he just changed it to mixed media. (laughs) Yep. In the beginning, he's like, here's all my... Nope, that's too much work.
1: The term Black Venus was used in the 19th century to describe women of African descent. This description of Venus, as referring to the Roman goddess of love and fertility, was used to insinuate sexual availability and potency. In Black Venus, Bradford was inspired by Baldwin Hills, an area of Los Angeles where wealthy blacks live. He drove around the neighborhood and found a random address from which an imaginary story of who lived there took off. Here he was inspired by map making as well as the history of abstraction, seeing maps as abstract grids. 2008.
0: They're all very cool. I know.
1: Jesus. So installation Mithra is a 70 by 20 by 25 foot arc constructed from salvage plywood barricade fencing. It was shipped to New Orleans. Do you say New Orleans or New Orleans? I say New Orleans
0: because I'm not from there, so I feel like people who are from there say New Orleans, yeah. Or like like New New Orleans, Orleans. (laughs) yeah, they put it together in like a word, one word.
1: For an art exhibit called Prospect New Orleans, uh, commemorating Hurricane Katrina. Mithra, a gigantic sculpture that resembled Noah's Ark, was placed at the center of Lower Ninth Ward in the city, and this was to deliberately preach restoration that faced the epicenter of the storm. I knew that I wanted to build a larger vessel. And this FEMA sign that reads, One cat scene kind of got me going. Every house in New Orleans had to be inspected for survivors. I decided to concentrate on the animals because in some houses, it would have five or six dead people. And I didn't want to document that. This sign was, One cat scene, And I started thinking about, one cat instead of two about Noah's Ark and where the other cat would be and about isolation and wandering. So that is one element of this project. One cat outside, beagle taken, both canines rescued, shepherd seen. I also use the billboards that I use in my painting practice as the structure for the Ark also in 2008 was this painting a truly rich man is one whose children run into his arms even when his hands are empty nine feet by nine feet oh i like that title maxwell heller says it calls to mind the charred and shattered windshields of cars burned in riots black webbed with streaks of light sleek If studied section by section, it offers traces of the artist's sensual, tactile process, revealing delicate layers of found material, sliced and sanded, lacquered and pasted until transformed. In 2009, the Getty Museum in Los Angeles.
0: And they got their marble from Italy. Yeah,
1: they're fancy. They almost burned down in the fire. So the Getty Museum invited Bradford to do a project of his choice with its education department. He chose teachers rather than students as his primary audience, mm. bringing 10 other artists, including Michael Ju, Catherine Opie, Amy Silman, and Carol Walker, to collaborate in developing a set of free lesson plans for kindergarten through twelfth teachers.
0: Dude, he's amazing. He's like, no, let's go right to the source and then we can continue this instead of me just doing one class and that being it. So that was in
1: 2009. Um, 2013. And these are big jumps. I get it. I'm not going to go year by year. Stop yelling at her. So in 2013, uh, being in the studio is only one part of his practice. He dedicates his time and resources into developing the arts and addressing the social needs in his city. In 2013, Mark Bradford and the philanthropist Eileen Harris Norton and neighborhood activist Alan DeCastro established art and practice. An organization based in Lemur Park that encourages engagement with the arts. Additionally, via a collaborator, it supports local 18 to 24-year-olds who are transitioning out of foster care. Mm-hmm. Bradford, DeCastro, and Norton are long-term residents of South LA and have witnessed firsthand how a lack of education, educational, and social resources can affect the community. The pair created art and practice as a developmental platform for transitional age youth, stressing the importance of creative activity and practical skills for personal transformation and social change. I saw this video and it's so cool. It's these young black kids working with Mark directly and they make art together and they do murals together and they post we. pasting prints together Mm -hmm. and he's there he's engaged he's helping them find their creativity it's it's pretty incredible what he's doing for his community
0: yeah that's so cool because he because he realizes that if no one gave him the support and love that I mean that I was talking about my friend she's like a childhood development Mm -hmm. early childhood development person and man those years are so important like you can really be screwed over just by the fact that no one's there for you like yeah I mean you can get through not having a good education you can get through a lot of things but if you don't think anybody gives a shit about you your life just doesn't go the best (laughs) yeah you know you're dealing with that forever
1: It's only magnified, I think, you know, in a community where everyone feels like no one's watching you or their back is turned Mm -hmm. to you or there's prejudice and whatever. Not whatever. I mean, a lot. (laughs) It just
0: continues. (laughs) Especially like the foster care situation. Yeah. Because we were, me and my friend were just talking about after school care and like in cities that after school care is taken out of the program or whatever or lessened, those those people who have to work and can't be there for their kids doesn't mean they don't care but they can't Mm -hmm. they simply cannot be those kids still get left out of a lot of things that are really important and to just have Mm -hmm. someone to go home to at the end of the day who can help them. And so I can imagine foster care is like a very strange situation as well, where there's something similar. So to have somebody who cares somewhere to go where someone is like engaging with you and spending time with you and telling you that you're good at shit or to Mm -hmm. keep developing or just that's so important, especially with art because that's the thing that nobody cares about in school environments and stuff.
1: And it's something that can be theirs and that you Mm -hmm. can do anywhere with anything. And, you know, I think it's a, it can be such a vulnerable thing. And we saw earlier, Mark himself got teased for being creative and being sensitive, Mm -hmm. but maybe it, you know, it saved his life and maybe he's offering that gift onto others and giving them an outlet and a way to breathe and get through things. In fall 2014, Bradford's Sculpture Bell Tower, which was modeled after a jumbo-drawn ta- jumbo screen, was unveiled at Tom Bradley International Terminal of the Los Angeles International Airport, suspended above a passenger security screening area on the mezzanine level of the terminal. Jordan and I actually saw this you did? when we went to Japan. Yeah. It is
0: amazing. hmm Whoa, it's so cool. Seriously. Yeah.
1: He wanted to make something that referenced the way technology manages people, but also something atavistic, atavistic, atavistic. Do you know what that means? Where are you? Atavistic, no. Atavistic of a relating or characterized by atavism. Mm. That is not helpful, dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> Re- reverting <laughs> to or suggesting the characteristics of a remote ancestor or primitive type. Okay that's helpful okay historically the bell tower is simultaneously a site of surveillance and warning as well as civic and cultural celebration the maquette for the piece which hangs from the ceiling of a studio looks huge yet is yet it is only one third scale that in this is when he was working on yeah. it. the interior is a spiral that creates the visual effect of a vortex Bradford discusses Bell Tower in the context of how societies use signals to organize, to move people, or to regulate behavior. It is the same thing at sporting events. I was at a Lakers game not too long ago. He continues describing how the Jumbotron cued the crowd's behavior as he watched a sea of people switch their attention from the floor to the Jumbotron and back. Watch the game, and now watch the kissing cam. Whatever the technology is telling us to do, we do it. Whoa. Bradford, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Bradford draws the same comparison for airport arrival and departure screens. You look up and it says gate number 37 and you just go to gate number 37. We're so comfortable with being controlled. I'm
0: so comfortable with it that I didn't even realize it was happening.
1: Workhouse. Gate <laughs> <Wow.
0: Day> 37. <laughs> Hey, without it, how do you get on your plane? (laughs) Oh, you're better than us, Mark. You can find your (laughs) plane without the Jumbotron? Fine. (laughs) How did people do anything before technology? That's my scary realization. Because
1: there was only two terminals. Yeah, I guess so.
0: (laughs) It's like the Omaha airport. Whenever I go there, I'm like, I like look around. I'm like, is this all of it? Or (laughs) There's just a small circle. And in the middle, there's like a Pizza Hut cafe whatever and it's just one and everybody's wearing a husker's hat
1: <laughs> <laughs> um bradford says the singular body is vulnerable in these spaces the singular body that looks up at these the jumbotrons airport displays and tsa screening areas get lost and doesn't know where to go he adds that's why i wanted to use this And he wraps his knuckle against a sheet of ply. This has a very different relationship. It puts it down to the street level, he says, referring to the plywood function as construction barricades. It all has to do with the ways in which our physicality can be controlled. While Lindsay was saying that
0: whole thing, she had both her hands in like the OK or like the uh, Italian like. What is it when they do that? No, but that's this way. This is Okay, like, it's like, okay, but but smaller. And she kept just like every syllable. She'd move her hands. Just so you know. That's how she said
1: it. It's very good. <laughs> the hard thing with Mark is he talks in these like fragmented thoughts and sentences. <laughs> he interrupts so it himself. Sounds, yeah, so it sounds like I'm just bad at typing <laughs> <laughs> and delivering information. But... He talks so passionately that he, like, starts and stops and starts and stops. and then um, his text messaging is impossible to read. Okay, 2015. It's crazy. He just, like, went to school, and now he's doing all these massive projects. It blows my mind. Must be cool. Oh, man. <sighs> 2015. Mark was in his early 20s, not in 2015, but when the AIDS crisis hit America in the 80s. A lot of people were dying, and people were dealing with shame, guilt, and the church. Later, at the Hammer Museum, he created this map of the U.S., scraped out of the wall with AIDS statistics of AIDS infection.
0: Scraped out of the wall?
1: Oh, so, I have to yeah. look at it, probably. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh.
1: He sanded back through the lot. So, if you don't know, the Hammer Museum, when you enter, there's the stairwell up. And there's this L-shaped wall, and they always have an artist do a mural on that wall. And so it's been years and years and years of building up different murals on that wall, and they paint over it, then a mural, then they paint over it. So Mark sanded back through the lobby wall, so all the previous artist's work became visible again as his mark-making So it's called Finding Barry 2015 because Barry McGee was the first artist to paint the lobby wall. Was he? Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Finding Barry. (laughs) I love it. Wait, 2015? Um, 2015 was when Mark did it. I feel like I saw this. I feel like it. Really? I feel like
0: it was up while I came back to LA for something. So
1: it's a map like a outlined map of the United States and then a bunch of AIDS statistics, and it's all sanded paper looking so it still has his aesthetic of that you know torn paper and a bunch of colors and everything so some I don't have a person just said some lady said, but he also began doing research, looking at medical images of AIDS and close up microscopic images of blood of bodily fluids. And through these very abstract images, he found a way into content that had to do with the body, and that had to do with the body in crisis. Mark said, I think I do want people to remember, people that struggle, not just erase it. We as a society can do more, not to turn our gaze if a person says they're in need.
0: I feel like I saw this, but okay, okay, I'm not sure.
1: This same year, he also created Pool Painting One, a site-specific drawing inspired by Solowit. Everybody saw Sol! Sol! on a 60-foot wall in the Wadsworth Athenium. Athenium. Mm-hmm. Wadsworth Athenium, At an art museum in Connecticut. Bradford applied dense layers of vibrantly colored paper, paint. Oh, it does say paint. Yay, and <laughs> rope. <laughs> Um, he sanded, peeled, stripped and cut away from the wall to create a vivid and textured composition. He would put all the stuff on. He had these ropes and then he would peel. I think the ropes are all gone now. Maybe there's some rope in there, but he would peel them off. So then there'd be these like crevices in it. Yeah. He created waterfall for his exhibition titled Be Strong Boquan at Hauser and Worth in New York. Waterfall is composed of remnants of paper and rope that were peeled away from a pole painting whose surface was built up by layering canvas with alternating sheets of billboard paper and rope.:
0: It reminds me of when you like open a like a FedEx box or something basically the the pole painting pulled off the wall and like, yeah,
1: yeah, and then draped over in two thousand seventeen. In May, the Baltimore Museum of Art and the Rose Art Museum at Brandeis University, in cooperation with the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, presented Mark Bradford as the representative for the United States at La Biennale de Venezia. No big deal. Venice Art Biennial Biennale, biennial. It is what it is. In every
0: language, it is. Sorry, sorry I don't know every word in the whole world and how it's supposed to be pronounced in your culture (laughs) and like how you decide it is. It's like when you go, it's like New Orleans, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it looks like New Orleans to me. Sorry, I haven't lived there and know what people call it there. My
1: bad. Olive's going to be my my attitude for the moment.
0: (laughs) For every moment. Um.
1: So he was chosen for the 57th International Art Ex- Exhibition. Bradford's exhibition titled Tomorrow is Another Day garnered extensive critical acclaim, and Bradford was lauded as our Jackson Pollock.
0: Who's who is we?
1: Maybe like our contemporary Jackson Pollock. Oh, Wasn't Pollock here? I was like,
0: yeah, isn't Pollock already ours? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's like our generation, you know, our modern very,
1: yeah. day Pollock, or he's just our Mark Bradford. Yeah, exactly. Hmm.
0: <laughs> Why are we comparing everyone?
1: Jesus. <laughs> the exhibition space looks like the White House. Very Americanness of the architecture. Mark thought, wouldn't it be interesting to kind of pollute it? Yes, like the White House after the apocalypse. His exhibition included large paintings, sculptures, and a film. They cast a critical eye over structures of class, race, and gender that underpin American society today. You enter through the side of the building rather than the front door behind the columns. This was very important. Mark said, I never felt walking through the front door would ever work. I don't think that strong ideas ever go through the front door anyway.
0: Why doesn't my brain work better? (laughs) His brain works the way that brains should work, and mine just works the way that everyone else's works. You go through the front door. <laughs> There's a door in the front. You just go that way. Unless it says it's closed, anything. and then you probably look for a different entrance. You go through the front door. <laughs> you go to gate 37. <laughs> the arrow says go this way, and then you go that way. I mean, you just follow the signage. And Mark's like, no, you don't. Mark's like, i do whatever the fuck I want.
1: So it means so many things. How is he so smart? So in a warehouse in South LA, where else would he be? Not far from where he grew up, he created a full-size model of the biennial United States Pavilion, a stately building with echoes of Monticello. Monticello. Then he spent the last year testing out his ideas in it. This is Mark talking. Building the pavilion was great because I was making this thing that's all about power into a safe place where I could play, have angst, fall on the ground, who at six foot eight, (gasps) he's taller than I estimated, six foot eight was slouching to make himself more accessible. It's like taking a hairbrush and lip syncing your favorite song in the mirror when nobody's looking.
0: He's so smart. (laughs) Sound like an idiot. (laughs) For reals though? Well, I yeah. wish I could recreate my own spaces, too, of things.
1: We could do maquettes, little baby oh, ones. Little babies. You can't fall on the ground of a maquette. <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, the broad social changes in America, from the police violence that ignited the Black Lives Matter movement to the messages of hate that he feels were unleashed by the November election fueled a personal sense of crisis that permeates much of his show in Venice. Tomorrow is another day. He said, I felt like a lot of the progress we've made to be inclusive, to make sure young little trans kids are safe, was going in the blink of an eye. Making this body of work became very, very emotional for me. I felt I was making it in a house that was burning." The mythological references first appear in a poem by Mr. Bradford hanging on the pavilion's facade, written in the voice of Hephaestus, the Greek god of fire, metalworking, and sculpture. He encounters Medusa, mad as hell, I looked at her dead in the eye, and he knew her. His biennial exhibition starts and almost stops with a bulbous red and black sculpture called Spoiled Foot, Bulging from the ceiling, it forces visitors to hug the room's periphery, diseased-looking surface made from canvas and paper, is as close as the artist has come to ugliness. Mark says, people are always doing this passive looking. It's always horizontal, standing at the center, so I really wanted to play with the physicality of the person's body. And so I created a space that feels tight. So that you can't get into the center. The center is no longer there. I want to collapse and make a sculpture that infests the center. Really about innards. You're just like a, he's just so much smarter than me. <laughs> um so the sculpture really it comes down from the ceiling and it just it's like a tumor on the ceiling of Yeah and it just comes down and weighs into the center of the room so you have to actually walk the edges of the room to get around it. So cool in every way. He said the next room is really like vomiting. Vomiting up innards. It looks like entrails. It looks like guts. The second gallery features another sculpture called Medusa, made of black paper rolls as thick as fire hoses that have been soaked, wrung, and shaped into coils that recall the snakes of Medusa's hair. Three new paintings, each named for a siren, hang on the walls. They are his first end paper paintings in 13 years and his darkest yet. The papers are dyed to create a black on black palette. I like the tension between the dark paintings, where everything is underneath, and the Medusa sculpture, this externalized rage. He said, The dark tones of the exhibition changes after a passion through the rotundra, leading to new large-scale paintings that evoke cellular or galactic forms, and a few of expansiveness. He makes these paintings without brushes or any kind of liquid or powdered paint. Building of layers of colored paper on canvas, using a tool like an automobile sander to expose the various hues buried in the layers. Or as Mr. Bradford puts it, he's using the sander as a paintbrush. The final gallery can be read as a celebration of the gay black body, featuring his video Niag- Niagara
0: or Ni- Niagara. I think so. Or Niagara.
1: Oh, Niagara. Not
0: Ni- what would you think, Niagara? Yeah.
1: Um, It follows a black man, Melvin, his old neighbor, in orange shorts, walking with the flamboyant hip action of Marilyn Monroe on the streets of South Central. The video touches on sexual and economic vulnerability, but also exuberance. Perhaps Mr. Bradford, who has borrowed the exhibition's title from the last line of the Civil War novel, Gone with the Wind, is ending on an optimistic note. Mark talks about hope here. It's rough around the edges, but still hopeful. Uh, For hordes of collectors, curators, and art levels, there are undeniable bragging rights that come with getting an early glimpse of the Venice Biennale. Almost all artworks and major installations remain tightly under wraps in the two years between each edition. That's why, when a profile of the U.S. official representative artist Mark Bradford appeared in the New York Times um, when this happened accompanied by numerous pictures of his in progress artworks no one appears to have been more caught off guard than the artist himself this Wait, was like what a huge, this was a huge scandal when it happened he like they did a profile on him in the new york times and they released images of his artwork for the show in the article before his show opened what
0: did they not Talk about what... what well, um,
1: You're going <laughs> to... Okay, okay. Okay. Bradford said, those are copyrighted images. Those are mine. Bradford told Hyperallergic. Hyperallergic? Yeah. They told... <gasps> every time
0: Hyperallergic comes up, I'm just going to say the golden doodle. Bradford told the golden doodle yeah. after... <laughs> golden
1: doodle. Um, after the Times profile appeared online, he said the installation had evolved significantly since the photos were taken. This is the Venice Biennale, and no one let me have a voice. No one showed me or asked for my permission. My gallery was surprised, the photographer was surprised, and the curatorial team in Venice was surprised. So who did this? That's that's some bootleg shit. That is not acceptable. The pavilion's commissioner, Christopher Bedford, also expressed his discomfort with the publication of the images. In the days following the article's publication, however, it became clear that the responsibility lay elsewhere. Although Bradford initially indicated that his gallery, Hauser & Wirth, was surprised that the photos had been published, the gallery was in fact the source that provided the images what? to the newspaper.
0: Asshole! They spoke-
1: I'd be so <laughs> upset. Oh my god. Talk about betrayed. I wonder if it was like some newbie art intern oh, or like god. You know, like an artist intern that's like send the images of Mark to New York Times. It's just like okay. And then just like.
0: <laughs> I get the worst feeling in my chest when you say that because I've made mistakes like that as an intern or like as a newbie <laughs> where you're just like oh yeah and then and then everyone's like what the fuck are you doing?
1: And they're like what? Oh, oh, oh my no. god it's the worst feeling. Oh. And to have Mark mad at oh, you. Oh know?
0: no. I would that's like having Robert Over be mad at me from his grave. The yeah. fuck did you do Okay. Sorry.
1: Um a spokeswoman for the Times told Artnet News The New York Times received the images and permission to publish these images from Michael Plunkett, Mark Bradford's liaison at his gallery Hauser <sighs> and Worth, and from his publicist Andrea Schwan. In a statement, a spokesperson for Hauser & Worth said, several images among those sent were included in error. Mark Bradford was unaware that these specific images were among the photographs provided to the Times until he saw them in print. The New York Times did not contact the artist, the photographer, nor Hauser & Worth to confirm permission for the publication of the images, nor to check the captions or courtesy information. Artnet News put the statement to the Times, which offered the following amplification. It is not the Times' responsibility to reconfirm permission granted for the images. It is the Gallery's responsibility, when acting on behalf of an artist, to confirm and clear all images with the artist before they're sent out for use.
0: I mean, I kind of agree with that. If someone sent the images, they're confirming that you can have them.
1: Right. Right. Yep, I completely agree. Oh, but that sucks. Everyone's just being like, uh, not my fault, not my fault, not my fault, not my fault. And Mark's just like, okay, you guys, <laughs> don't do this.
0: Jesus.
1: In November 2017, Bradford presented Pickett's Charge, a monumental commissioned the cyclorama. Oh, this is the round. Yeah, a cyclorama is a panoramic image on the inside of a cylindrical platform. Uh, uh-
0: a cyclorama of, is such a cute word. <laughs>
1: <laughs> of paintings at the Smithsonian's Hershorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C. I've been there. Jealous. And it's a cool museum. At 400 linear feet of wall space, the work in, is Bradford's largest site-specific work to date. These paintings are based off of the Gettysburg cyclorama, which depicts a key battle in the American Civil War. Mark says, The fabric of the country was being torn apart by two factions. This image imbued a lot of those thoughts and tensions and histories laying on top of each other, and policy and politic. And rope is basically what I draw with. It is my hand. I'm actually using the rope as a background, but this is where the rope was. So now it's a memory. So that's the memory of the rope. And the rope now is on top. I'm going to quit art today.
0: (laughs) I'm simultaneously inspired and excited to make stuff while also being like, I think I need to quit. I'm
1: sorry. He sent the Gettysburg image to the billboard printing company and used the dots, halftones, to print it like a billboard. So it started to fall apart. He wanted it to function like a billboard. You're never supposed to stand this close. And then when you step back, it functions like a billboard.
0: How does he get, not that you know the answer to this, I don't know. But how does he get it to stay when he pulls back? I guess it's just like adhered from, you would think like a whole, like it would just come up this way. Do you know what I'm saying? Physically, like the rope is underneath. He's like Mm -hmm. plastering stuff on. How, when he pulls the rope, does it rip instead of, like, pull up?
1: Some stuff too get pulled up more. You should look at a detail Okay, image. okay. All right. He said, I want this idea of infinity, too. That's why I use this horizon line. I make sure all of the lines were horizontal, almost like a cyclone, that it would twist and twist. They become abstract paintings in the end. But the source material comes from something that is more politically and socially charged. And some of the urgency is still in it. You can't rip it all out. I didn't want to rip it all out. So you can see there are these moments when you can see the original image of the Civil War image. You can see these little moments, but it's so fragmented and layered. It becomes abstract. In December 2017, it was announced that Bradford would inaugurate Hauser and Worth's gallery space in Hong Kong, their new location, with a body of new work. The exhibition, which opened March 27, 2018, comprised a number of new large-scale paintings as well as work that incorporate merchant posters found on the streets. Again. In 2018, in September, the Baltimore Museum of Art opened Tomorrow is Another Day, a restaging of Bradford's exhibition at the Venice Biennale. As part of the exhibition, Bradford collaborated with children and staff from the Greenmount West Community Center to silkscreen merchandise on sale in a permanent pop-up shop in the museum. 100% of the proceeds go directly back to the center. Is a permanent pop-up shop just a shop? (laughs) Maybe permanent for, like, the entirety of the show. (laughs) Like,
0: those are the opposite things.
1: (laughs) So that was in September. In December 2018, a monumental new commission by Bradford was unveiled at the University of California, San Diego, Stewart collection, entitled... What hath God wrought? A 195-foot-tall work is the tallest structure on the campus and takes as its point of departure. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you don't, you're just reading words. You don't even know what you're saying. It's like reading philosophy where you're like, I just read this whole
1: page and I have no idea what it said. 195-foot-tall um, work is the tallest structure on the campus and takes as his point of departure the powerful influence of technology on communication. Uh, that's as much as I have on that. It's a pole? It's, yeah, like this really large pole. It seems very un. That's why I was like, it looks me. nothing
0: like his work, but okay.
1: Yeah. When I was Googling images, this one kept popping up and I scrolled by it so many times because I'm like, that's not Marx. Like, maybe that's the site of you know uc san diego yeah,
0: that's weird is there a close-up of it where it's like a th-
1: look it up what hath god wrought
0: you know why there's no close-ups it's just a goddamn pole. oh wait is this
1: was that a light on top yeah it's like
0: a little oh it blinks
1: so in 2019 today this year <laughs> in january before freeze art fair it was announced that Bradford had created a unique image of the police body camera entitled Life Size. Proceeds from sales of his limited edition print series would go directly to Agnes Gunn's Art for Justice Fund to help support greater career opportunities for people who are transitioning back home from prison. Mm-hmm. Bradford was the first artist since the fund's establishment to directly support the organization with proceeds from the sale of his artwork. Mark said, when I see a young black man murdered by the police on television, I'm trying to grapple with policy. The artist tells professor Anita Hill in our book, I'm trying to grapple with it personally. I'm always interested in found objects and how context can give meaning The police body camera carries with it such loaded and complex connotations. I also love it as an object. It's both haunting and resonant. Hmm. So this is the image below.
0: His work is changing.
1: So other stuff. Bradford has participated in the ninth Guangzhou Biennial in 2012 and has previously exhibited at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. 2012, the Institute of Contemporary Art Boston in 2011, the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago in 2011, at Ohio State University in 2010, the Carnegie Museum of Art in 2008, the Sycamore Jenkins Gallery Street Level 2007, at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University, the Wexner Center for the Arts, USA Today at the Royal Academy in London, Whitney Biennial, Liverpool Biennial. No biggie. Some awards in November 2018, Bradford, Alan DeCastro and Eileen Harris-Norton were recognized for their work with art and practice at the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in D.C. at the annual New York Gala in um, November 2018. It's gala. <laughs> gala. 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 <laughs> In November 2017, Bradford was honored as WSJ, Wall Street Journal's Magazine.
0: uh, (laughs) I'm sorry. That's not like a time-saving acronym. Or whatever it's
1: called. The Wall Street Journal Magazine's Art Innovator at their annual Innovator Awards. In 2016, Bradford was awarded the High Museum of Art's David C. Driscoll Prize. In 2014, Bradford was presented with the U.S. Department of State's Medal of Arts. In 2013, he was elected as the National Academician? Yeah, Academician. He's real smart, and our nation (laughs) says it's good. Anyways, by the National Academy Museum and School of Fine Arts in New York. He also was the recipient of a grant from the MacArthur Fellows Program... Also known as the MacArthur Genius Grant Award. Oh, no,
0: he's a genius.
1: The Wexner Center Residency Award in 2009. The Bucksbaum Award, granted by the Whitney Museum of American Art in 2006. The United States Artist Fellowship in 2006. The Nancy Graves Foundation Grant in 2002. And the Joan Mitchell wow. Foundation Grant in 2002. What we're going to talk about is titled the section Money on My Mind. Um, it's about auctions. Oh, Ooh, this one in cool. March 2018, Helter Skelter won a monumental painting sold for US 12 million, Whoa. an artist record and the highest ever auction price achieved by a living African American artist, based oh, on sales results from Phillips and previous auction data. In 2015, wait, t- at auction?
0: Brad- not f- he didn't sell it for that much. <laughs>
1: Okay. Yes, at auction. In 2015, Bradford's mixed media collage called Constitution 4, what was made in 2013, was sold for $5.8 million at Phillips, an auction high for the artist, just months after Smear. This was 2015, so Helter Skelter hadn't sold oh, okay. yet, just okay. for the confusion. Um, just after Smear, which was in 2015, was sold for $4.4 million, The upper estimate was so what they thought it was going to go for was 700,000. Oh, ha ha, you were wrong. At, at Sotheby's New York, the artist has been exclusively represented by Hauser and Wirth since 2015. He had previously shown with Sycamore Jenkins and Co and White Cube. Even after the so- debacle
0: with the p- pictures, Bye. he's still I was I was going to ask you, is he with a different gallery now? But no.
1: No, he's still there. There was an exhibition he had in L.A. there pretty huh, recently. Okay. I mean, Hauser and Worth. Yeah. Is- <laughs> yeah. I was and just God. curious
0: how that all went down. So, I'm sure it was like a weird moment.
1: In the end, the most powerful takeaway I had from my research of Mark was his unapologetic use of personal materials and history, allowing the familiarities of his past to form and influence his work, collapsing the physicality of his daily life with the social and political fabric and to not be held down by the notion of what art should look like, it reminded me to stay focused on my own message, on my own experience. Yes, that's great.
0: That's thank you. Uh, a very. That's a similar takeaway. And for yeah. and I just want to be smarter. I don't know if that's a thing you can control, but <laughs>
1: God, I wish. Also, if you are enjoying this, please. Rate, review, subscribe. Maybe we'll figure out how many <laughs> subscribers we have if we have enough it's gotta be at, least at some two. point. <laughs>
0: tell your friends. Oh,
1: yeah. If you like it, tell your friends who also may or may not like it to listen. We're going to get our Patreon going soon. So if you want to support us, throw us a few dollars a month. That'll oh, help wow. us to be more consistent with this. For sure. Um, cool. Bye-bye.